Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, Act 5 of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. I am Tim McIntosh and I am joined by Heidi White. Hello, good morning, Heidi White. I'm so glad to be here, Tim. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's our penultimate episode. We've got Act 5 today and then we're going to do Q&A next week. So a little heads up to listeners, if you would like, if you've got some questions about The Tempest, um, we will send a little hashtag out on the Facebook page. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But Heidi, right now, I want to I play a couple clips of two different performances of the same scene. Okay. And they're both of Prospero. Um, and and I, I just want to kind of like talk briefly at the top of the show about how very differently people have imagined Prospero. And I think you'll hear it in this first clip. So the first clip is from Helen Miram. They, they made a movie, I think about 10 years ago, instead of having uh, a man played Prospero, they had the great Helen Mirren play Prospero. And so I want to play uh, a clip of her. Uh, this is right when she and Ariel are talking about their captives at the top of Act 5, their captives being Alonzo and Sebastian, Antonio and Gonzalo. And let's listen to Helen Mirren play it. Your charm so strongly works them that if you now beheld them, your affections would become tender. Dost thou think so, spirit? Mine would, master. Were I human? And mine shall. As thou, which art but air, a touch, a feeling of their afflictions, and shall not myself, one of their kind, be kindlier moved than thou art? 
Though with their high wrongs, I am struck to the quick. Yet with my nobler reason against my fury do I take part. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent, the sole drift of my purpose doth extend not a frown further. Okay, so that was Helen Mirren as Prospero talking to Ariel about these captives. And Ariel, you know, is re- Ariel saying, you know, if I was human, I would have sympathy. I would find forgiveness. And Heidi, it seems to me that um, that Prospero responds gently and coolly. Now let's listen to let's listen to another Prospero. This Prospero is from the Royal Shakespeare Company. I have posted the links online to their performance. Prospero is being played by Simon Russell Beale, and let's listen to how differently Beale plays the part. His tears run down his beard. Like winter's drops from eaves of reeds, your charm so strongly works them. But if you now beheld them, your affections would become tender. Dost thou think so, spirit? Mine would, sir, were I human. Hast thou which art but air, a touch, a feeling of their afflictions, and shall not myself one of their kind, the relish all as sharply passion as they, be kindlier moved than thou art? Though with their high wrongs I am struck to the quick, Yet with my nobler reason, against my fury do I take part. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent, the sole drift of my purpose doth extend not a frown further. So Heidi, you can hear it. Yes. Really different takes. Two very, very different portrayals of Prospero. How would you describe the second one? Uh, Simon Beale from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Sure. I mean, a masterful actor. He owns every part that he plays. He's, but he does play Prospero as a Prospero attempting to restrain himself, mm. with who's full of passion and... Helen Mirren plays Prospero fully in command all the time. Yeah. And the words of this speech support both performances, but they are completely different. Yeah. I know. What, what's your take, Tim? I agree. I, I, it seems like the second performance, in the first performance, Ariel is counseling Prospero, and Prospero wants to take the counsel. In the second, Ariel is, it almost is a little bit of a rebuke. It's done in a very mild voice. And I think Prospero takes it as a rebuke that he doesn't want to soften to. 
Right. And they even inserted, I mean, it's, this part is not in the text. Simon Beale inserts those two yells. Right. You know, right after he hears uh, Ariel say, Ariel would soften were he human. Prospero yells. He does not, he does not want to hear that at all. Right. Right. So this week on the Close Reads podcast Facebook group, there was, and I know you saw this, yeah. Tim, there was a conversation about Prospero brought up by one of our listeners, Sarah, who always has such thoughtful comments and questions and engagement in the conversation that we have on Facebook, this very rich conversation. I encourage all of our listeners, if you want to go a little deeper, uh, to get on that Facebook group and join the conversations. Um, But she asked some questions that brought to the surface then these two different perspectives on Prospero. Uh Leaving aside the modern colonial interpretation of him as this, you know, appropriator of uh, the native lands, and he's actually the subversive bad guy of the story. I'm going to leave that completely out of this conversation. I don't think that's in the text. Um, But the question of whether or not in Act 5, Prospero is repenting or whether he's owning actions he doesn't repent of, they're just, they've just been resolved and brought to completion and now it's time for him to move on. Right. And that, the way that those two actors play that speech kind of embody those two different theories, those two different perspectives on Prospero. So do you take a stand on that? Is that a question mark in your mind in Act 5? What, what, are, what are your, you know, can you comment on that? Well, it seems, I mean, this is going to going back to the conversation we had at Act 3. It seems, I always think about this as a director. If I was going to direct The Tempest, I think you have to make a choice on this question. And the choice right. is exactly as you described it. Um, it's, it's whether Prospero is kind of, I'm just going to put it in my own words, Heidi, whether or not he's the sort of wizard who hovers slightly above all the action or whether he's a character that's fully involved in the play and he's a moral agent within those characters. And the difference between he and the other characters is that he has a staff and magic books and has a magical magical spells which you can cast over characters and the island and i will just tell you what i prefer i think the second is more interesting that prospero is a character like every other character he's the most powerful character he's a wronged character he's been done wrong by his brother and the other italians excepting gonzalo but he's just as um, passionate and as potentially faulty as the other characters in the play. And I really like Simon Beale's portrayal. He, he gives Prospero this moment, I think, in that speech where Prospero has to decide what kind of a person he's going to be. And Prospero doesn't knows what the right thing is. He knows what the right choice is. He just doesn't really want to choose it. He doesn't want to make that choice, but he does. And 
to kind of segue us into the close of the play, it's one of the most touching and beautiful moments in all of Shakespeare when all of the characters are reunited, particularly Prospero with his brother. And the forgiveness seems sincere on... The penitence and the forgiveness seem sincere on all sides. To me, they seem penitent. Everyone seems like um, they've come full circle. Huh. Even, do you think Sebastian and Antonio? Oh, that's a good question. I was thinking mainly about, yeah, I was thinking mainly, I think, about Alonzo. Sure. Alonzo, I think there's no question that his repentance is truly sincere. Uh, and, And I love that. I think that's really wonderful. This is a very mature and thoughtful Shakespeare, a very human, he's always very human, but, you know, at the ends of many of his comedies, there's there's still a, a clear kind of division between the good guys and the bad guys right. in a lot of his earlier comedies, his high comedies, even some of his best comedies. And, that, and that's fine. That's completely fine to use stock characters to tell a human story. That's it, it takes a genius to do it, or, but yeah. it, it can be done, as Shakespeare shows over and over again. But in this play, man, and we keep talking about it. We've talked about it every week, just how human these characters are. Uh, but Alonzo's repentance seems completely genuine. Like, I put my full weight on that. Right. Um, Sebastian and Antonio, I'm less sure about, but yeah. they're almost... <laughs> yeah. What's funny about it, though, Tim, and I, I'm curious if you agree with me on that, it almost seems to not even matter, as if they were... They're not the point. They were this corrupting influence, and then they only have a couple of lines in this scene. Mm-hmm. And it's... it the, the play is... Seems to really, really... Um, buy into and accept at face value Prospero's statement in the speech that virtue, that the rarer action is in virtue than in mm-hmm. vengeance. Mm-hmm. Even the resolution of the play isn't we're getting the bad guys back. And they're, you know, they're relegated to the outer circle. You know, it's not like right. Malvolio at the end of Twelfth Night who's taken away and, right. uh, you know, dragged off stage swearing vengeance and shaking his fist. It's not that. It's the the true resolution of the play seems to be the drowning of the book and the staff. Yeah, I agree with you. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do think it's true. And there, I mean, what it, it, the play is not a tragedy. It's not Macbeth. It's not Hamlet. But it's not a comedy either. You know, we've kind of right. called it a, a romance. Um, and everyone is restored and it seems like oftentimes, and I think this is true of Winter's Tale also, everyone is restored and vengeance is put off in favor of forgiveness. And it is, it's both, it's, a, it's the way that you wish the world would go. More often, the world goes the the way of the tragedy. There's deaths and there's bodies left on the stage. That's how kind of justice is is enacted. But here in Winter's Tale, to the last romances, to the last plays that he wrote, forgiveness is the dominant theme of the last 
of the last act and it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. I mean, when Alonzo is um, kind of reunited with Prospero and when, when kind of everyone sees what's been lost, it's so, it's just really touching. It's really touching. And, it, I, you know, I almost forgot that Alonzo thought that his son had died. I was right. forgotten until this last scene. I was like, oh, yeah. I was so swept up in Ferdinand and Miranda's romance that I forgot. Alonzo's been pining for his lost son, thinking that he was drowned in the accident. And no, he discovers his son. So when everything is restored, there's also this kind of a surprise relief of... Um, people are alive that we thought were dead. Even, even the drunk Trinculo right. and Stefano, you know, even they are kind of reunited in their presence, even though everyone knows they're kind of rascals. Everyone's happy to, to see them. Right. They are. I think I agree with you about Prospero and his, uh, a trajectory of repentance and change for him. But I've not always, this, I'm going to comment some on reading literature, I guess, because I've not always read Prospero that way. And I, I think, you know, my, as, as you know, Tim, my background is in counseling. Our listeners know that. And so I think one of the things that literature does is it, reveals ourselves to us. It's almost mm. like a mirror. And this play is one of those for me, uh, along with a handful of others, in that I think as a younger person in reading and seeing this play performed, I wanted Prospero to be that godlike yeah. anchor point that that restrains, that cool and collected, that knowing exactly what's best. And even though these other characters were suffering, Prosper was pulling the strings and he was going to fully resolve it, but he knew what he was doing all along. Mm. And I don't think that's completely off the table. I think that Prospero did accomplish a master plan here and that the master plan was for the good of the land and the good of the soul, as we've been talking about these yeah. multiple levels of um, of interpretation there. I, I think that that's true, but I also think that Prospero, at this point, as a forty-year-old woman, <laughs> I I like this this interpretation of him. I think it's more consistent with the text when he says about when he owns Caliban's darkness, and when he says, "This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine." Mm. Right? Um, that there's there's I I think that that to what we've been talking about about the city and the soul that is some of Prospero's statement out loud of, I know that I have also been an agent of chaos in this land. And in attempting to rule it, I had, I was also learning to rule myself. Yeah. And virtue is better than vengeance. And so we don't overtly see that he was tempted and the things that he does do resolve into goodness. But in the ambiguity of his character, the older I get, the more aware of my own darkness, the less I need him to be this godlike, yeah. restrained, controlled character. And the more I think, wow, it's it actually is really lovely that he's on a trajectory of repentance and growth as well as everybody else. Yeah. I, I will say that I have more often seen him played 
Cooley. Me too. As Helen Mirren. And I, I... That's the more traditional interpretation of Prospero. So. And I really was taken by Simon Beals. I don't want to make it about his performance because the the podcast, we like to focus on the text and what Shakespeare wrote, but I can't help but but see these two kind of alternative choices. And I think Beale took a little bit of a less common approach in his performance of Prospero. And I'm with you, Heidi. The older I get, the more the more I like that choice. And if I was going to direct it, I, I would seek a Prospero that wanted to do the same thing. Well, and especially if it's Shakespeare, you know, if, if there is some kind of mirror of Shakespeare's own self, which is, we don't know that for sure, but like you said, it's hard to not see it that way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, especially with the epilogue, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, that uh, Shakespeare becomes more nuanced, more focused in his work on repentance and change throughout the canon. We see that in Winter's Tale, like you said, um, that there's a gentler perspective on people's capacity to change uh, and his character's capacity to change and to repent. And so I, I, I'm not speaking like a scholar here. I'm speaking in many ways like a, I guess, a counselor or just a human person looking at the work of this other human person right? and saying, it would make sense if that was always part of his contemplation of Prospero. Um, I've, I've heard it said, Titus Andronicus was an early play mm-hmm. for Shakespeare, and it's a horror film. I mean, it's such a horror film. Yes. And um, I think just to look at the arc of William Shakespeare as a playwright, to go from a horror film to the resolution of The Tempest, it really is. (laughs) You can see, you can see, you know, the six stages of man kind of playing out in his, in his own work to go from that sort of kind of like, bloody gothic that's an anachronism i know but that bloody um vengeful spectacle of a play to something that's so sweet and gentle and without death decidedly without death everyone survives everyone even caliban it seems to me heidi in some way is restored because he gets the island now to himself. He's kind of the lord of his own manor at the end of the play. Right. And it's not, it's not neat. Caliban is not, um, gosh, healed of what ails him, but he's still given the place that Prospero made his own. It's now Caliban's, and everyone's going to return home, and Caliban's going to stay there. Ariel is right. free. Everything has been restored. It does lead me to to wonder, though, did the characters, and let's accept Prospero from this, I'm thinking mainly about Prospero's brother. I'm thinking mainly about Alonzo. Does Alonzo... Well, uh, Antonio. Excuse me, Antonio. Mm -hmm. does, Does he... Does he improve, Heidi? Or is he just sort of restored and kind of thankful to not have vengeance wreaked upon him? Yeah, he's forgiven. 
But again, the focus is on the forgiveness, not the worthiness of the forgiven. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important to the play. And so I suspect that that's intentionally left ambiguous so that we don't get the satisfaction of being able to pass one judgment or another on Antonio. And instead, we're forced to see Prospero's forgiveness and restoration, regardless of the worthiness of the object Uh uh of it. What do you think? I agree. And (laughs) I hear the counselor in you coming out. I mean, like, this is, this is a lesson, (laughs) right? I mean, when people come to you for counseling, I'm sure they're not coming because everything is wonderful in their life and everyone is treating them well and with great kindness and they're not treating everyone you know, well with great kindness. They're coming to you because they've probably got some sort of relational problem of some sort of severity that they want to talk to you about. And I know enough about counseling and the discipline to know that <laughs> the only person that, um, how do I say this, Heidi? Prospero, if Prospero wants genuine repentance and is expecting to get it and needs to get it, he's not where he needs to be like psychologically. He has to be able to offer it regardless of whether or not his brother is worthy, regardless of how his brother response. Right. Well, and I have kind of a weird life with this psychological training, uh, while also, which I think is really important. It matters a lot. And then also the literary um, kind of side of the way that I think and engage with the world. And um, for the most part, those things dovetail and make my brain, I think, an interesting kind of place to be. I can entertain myself. I'll tell you that right now. Um, But to your point, I I see a couple of levels here. One is the the resolution of the story, which all of these threads of the story for Nana Miranda, Caliban, and the secondary characters, Trinculo and Stefano, uh, and then... um, Prospero himself and the outsiders, the Italians that have come and brought both corruption and kind of new life to the island as well. And and all those things are resolved through, oh, and Ariel as well and his mm-hmm, freedom. Mm-hmm. Those things be, uh, come together, dovetail, they, they get resolved. They get woven together in Act 5, largely through the actions and the words of Prospero. And I think what's interesting to me about this is that um, on, a, on the literary sense, as well as the psychological sense, that the focus of this play is on Prospero. And he's the father figure, right? And, and throughout Shakespeare's earlier comedies about lovers that have been separated for whatever reason, which this play has that for sure. Mm-hmm. And then they're brought together in the end uh, and they get to get married. But almost all the time in those plays and then Shakespeare's high comedies, you think of Much Ado About Nothing, um, Twelfth Night, uh, As You Like It, those, those big comedies. Um, the father is an obstacle, Oh, yeah. And, and the father is the secondary character, and the primary characters are the lovers. 
And you're rooting for the lovers against the fathers. And that that's the foundation of those comedies as they were in the old and new comedies and Greek right. comedy, which Shakespeare's kind of taking that and making it his own, but not in this play. And again, you've said it's not a true comedy, which is exactly right. It's not, but doesn't end a wedding and it does have lovers separated and they have to come back together. And there is a father figure, but in this play, the father figure is the focus. Yeah. That's a great and observation. Ferdinand and Miranda are almost secondary characters. Mm-hmm. They have a, they shine, but they are, they do not resolve things for themselves. They are brought together because of Prospero, and Prospero is the resolution and the tempest of this yeah. play. He is yeah. the source of the tempest of this play. And I think that's fascinating and truly masterful on Shakespeare's part, whether it's his own issues that he's putting out there or whether he's just writing a new kind of play. It's unique because of that. The father figure is also an obstacle in the beginning of Othello and all throughout, both fathers, all throughout Romeo and Romeo Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. So yeah, this is a turn. You know, this is this is something new, and I think you're exactly right. The spotlight is on the father for the first time. Instead of an obstacle, he's both uniting and he's standing in the center of the spotlight. Which is another reason why I think the idea of him having to repent of something makes the play better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Ferdinand and Miranda, we we discover them in Act Five playing chess um, before Mm. they're kind of brought back into the company of the Italians and Ferdinand is reunited with his father. And Miranda has this wonderful line, seeing all these other men, you know, she's not seen any men except for Prospero and Caliban and Ariel. And then Ferdinand, and I love when she walks on the stage and she's just kind of mesmerized by how wonderful mankind is, you know? Um, my question, Heidi, is now they're heading back on this restored ship with everyone. They're heading back to the mainland. Are are they going to live happily ever after? What should we expect of them? Yeah, I guess I've always taken that at face value and not even really... I, I think maybe I've even skipped over how important that question is because you saying it, that's a really good question and it's a little about bit, the play, but I just have never really thought about it before. Please, what do you think? <laughs> well, it's, I almost don't want to ask you because the play ends so beautifully with them together. And the, part of the fun of the end of a play is happily ever after seems likely, you know? Um, but this one, it occurred to me because they have met and become engaged in this kind of this Eden. You know, they're in this, they're in this natural world that is, is looked over by Prospero, is managed by Prospero. Um, we hear from Gonzalo early on kind of about this, this kind of dreamlike vision that he has for this island. And it seems like it's kind of true. It's a magical place. And now they're going back to society. You know, now they're going back to this place that ripped Prospero from his family, that um, took away the dukedom that was properly his. And Ferdinand's been there before. He seems like he's remained relatively unscathed. But dear me, Miranda, 
what is she going to do? What is she going to do back in Italy, in, in Italian society? And it, if I dwell on the question too long, which I give myself permission to not dwell on it too long, um, but if I do dwell on it too long, I worry a little bit, especially about her. Sure. Well, because it's over and over again, men, she over and over again brings that up. I've never seen other humans yeah. before. Oh, brave new world that has such people as this. Like it's, it is shoved into your face how sheltered that she is, which, you know, to kind of bring that down to earth is a valid question for uh-huh. a lot of the homeschool parents who are listening to this, right? That's, <laughs> you I know, are our that, kids yeah. going to walk out the door and, oh, brave new world. <laughs> right. Uh, and there's such a beauty and an innocence and a sweetness about that for Miranda. And she is amply rewarded for that uh, submission to the, her life. Um, and so far, the people that she has encountered have represented the full spectrum of humanity, though. And mm. I think that's important to point out that she does know Caliban, who, who attempted to attack her. So it it she has been sheltered but sheltered more by a numerical amount of people than by the full spectrum of human experience yeah she's fallen yeah. in love she's been well parented she's also encountered darkness through caliban uh and and so you know she's fully connected to nature uh on this island so she does have to learn about civilization but for i i I still think it's hopeful for her. Yeah. Good. Okay, so now I'm just going to apologize. What <laughs> what <laughs> what listeners did not hear was Heidi got a text from David Kern and he needed to know an answer from Heidi and I and he <laughs> needed to know it immediately. So we pressed pause on the recording and neither Heidi nor I knew exactly how and where to pick up. So what are we doing? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm just awkwardly telling everyone the backstory about why we're going to have very awkward segue. It's so great. He needs to know what book brings us the most comfort, which is a great question. I'm a hundred percent sure that has, it's not because David is curious, but because he's using it for some <laughs> kind of professional kind of development. Something. So listen, so, we will find out somewhere, like maybe on the close reads, uh, the new close reads, what, mailbag? Yeah, look mailbag? at, for, and I bet that's going to be in the mailbag. And we're not going to tell you on the air right now Good. which books bring us the most comfort. You're going to have to get the mailbag. Well done. Well done, Great. Heidi. Hey, by the way, let me, speaking of using opportunities to plug, let me plug how listeners can get involved. Um, the, the place that I see kind of like the most conversation happens on the Facebook page, the Close Reads discussion group. We've also got an Instagram and a Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can also get in touch with us via email by writing to closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And we've got an email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. So I'm going to, those are good ways to interact with us, especially in light of the fact that we've got a Q&A happening next week. So if you've got questions that we have not addressed in The Tempest, please send them our way. 
And we will do our best to surprise each other on the air with these questions. And yeah, that will be our last episode of The Tempest. Heidi, we have come to, at the end of Act 5, Prospera has reunited everyone. We're getting ready to kind of go back on the ship. And then we get something that's pretty uncommon in Shakespeare's plays. We get Tempest, excuse me, we get Prospero having just set Ariel free, having give, given Caliban charge of the island. Now everyone is gone except for he is standing alone on the stage about to depart the ship. And there's an epilogue, a, a poem. And I'm going to read it, Heidi. I'm just going to read the very end of the play. Spoken by Prospero alone on the stage. Now my charms are all are all o'erthrown. Let me start again because I don't like to I don't like to start that way. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must be here confined by you or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from your bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breaths of yours, my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. So he, he's saying kind of to the audience, um, I will remain here, but for your actions on my behalf. Right. For your prayers, your pardons, your indulgences. That's, when it's gonna, that's what's going to set him free from the island. And what's additionally interesting is it's not in the traditional rhyme and meter of Shakespeare, but it's an abbreviated, it's abbreviated mm-hmm. line. So now my charms are all o'erthrown. Six it's tetrameter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very unique for Shakespeare. And, and I, I am, I have not looked into this. I don't know of another occasion in Shakespeare's plays where he uses tetrameter. Right. Well, it's a little bit sing song, uh, which is, kind of an interesting choice for Prospero. You you expect this kind of stately, long line mm-hmm, diambic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the meter is very regular in this speech. It's really brilliant. And it's in couplets throughout the whole way. Now it is true. I must be here confined by you or sent to Naples. Let me not since I have my dukedom got. Yeah. But it almost reads like a nursery rhyme. But what is super interesting to me, two things about this speech, Tim. One is that... This is pretty rare for Shakespeare. It happens in Henry V, when, in which there's many chorus speeches throughout the play. Uh, and there's, but it's usually Shakespeare does a chorus at the beginning, like in Romeo and Juliet, when it's a prologue. Yeah. Um, and this is an epilogue. And I think that this is the strongest case within this play uh, that Prospero does represent Shakespeare. Or is at least, at the very least, a Shakespeare's 
intentionally putting into this play with a wink at the audience, a contemplation of his own retirement. Yeah. And on a deeper level, a a, a profound contemplation, meditation on the, the role of art and is a playwright and an actor a magician? Mm. Is it is it an appropriate manipulation of the audience? Uh, there, I mean, there's Shakespeare does that a lot in his plays, like the contemplation of theater, the play within the play, uh, what is real and what is an illusion and what is an I, the true identity and what isn't. And he, he seems to be thinking through that and taking that very seriously throughout his entire career. But one, this is the second thing that I find endlessly fascinating about this epilogue. What's, I don't see a lot of critical analysis of this epilogue to the same extent that you do with the, the internal speeches right. of Prospero, right. but I don't know why, because this is so fascinating to me. He basically puts himself in the position of Ariel, needing to be freed by the yeah. audience. yeah. That he's the slave of the audience the same way Ariel was his slave within the world of the play. Right. And I think that's just mind-boggling. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I, this line especially stuck out for me, Heidi. Now I want spirits to enforce. And I think want there means lack. So he's kind of like given up his staff. He's given up his magic. So... Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. The very end, it, it's, <laughs> it's peculiarly um, repentant toward the audience. Right. You know, and it's so, it's, I agree with you. I see less critical commentary on this than we than on the Act Five speech by Pro- Prospero. But this does seem to me more of an indication of a farewell. It seems more spoken in Shakespeare's voice, even than the Act Four monologue was. Well, and it has just some very profound contemplations in here about mercy, about freedom, uh, about. Um, the nature of magic and manipulation uh-huh. and the the interaction between a performer and a playwright and the audience and the interdependence thereof, it is, I think, just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like his, the thing that he's asking pardon for is deception. Right. Since I've got my dukedom back and pardoned the deceiver, dwell on this island by your spell. It's a funny thing to apologize for since we all show up hoping that the play is good enough that it will deceive us. You know, not deceive us on some deep level, deceive us into thinking I'm in reality right now. I'm dwelling inside reality. I've forgotten that I'm sitting in a padded theater seat watching something i feel like i'm fully immersed in this thing that's what we want and it's it's funny and i think you're right to say that you know he seems to be doing it with a wink in his eye he's apologizing to us for the thing that we wanted for it's, it's just funny it's a funny it's a funny close right well in the prologue for romeo and juliet and you know in many 
many classical choruses do this too, and Shakespeare does it, uh, and other Renaissance playwrights do this as they invoke the muse and then apologize for failing to live up to the audience's expectations or Mm. alternatively failing to do justice to the vision that the muse has given to the playwright. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a pretty common conceit for Shakespeare, but to put it at the end of a play and he is um, I think compelling and different, unique special yeah i was reading isaac asimov so isaac asimov the science Uh fiction writer wrote a lovely companion it's good it's It's good it's really good especially in the histories yeah absolutely and if and if you're kind of a newcomer to shakespeare and you don't want to just dive straight into like i don't know how you'd say like real deep interpretation but you just want kind of to read what the main stakes of the plays are. Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare, I think, is a wonderful place to start. He's best known as a science fiction writer, but (laughs) he's wonderful in Shakespeare. So at the end of The Tempest, he writes that, you know, like, he, he looks at this closing epilogue as, you know, perhaps this is Shakespeare's farewell to his art. And here's what Asimov says. Shakespeare is saying that he will write no more and will no longer practice the matchless magic of his literary genius, so some critics say. But this, in my opinion, is too sentimental an interpretation, and I doubt it. For one thing, a compulsive writer like Shakespeare couldn't deliberately plan to give up writing while he was capable of holding a pen. On this one point, I claim to be an authority. For another, he did continue to write in actual fact, engaging in two collaborative efforts with Fletcher Henry VIII, and two noble kinsmen. I think that Asimov has got a good point, um, that Shakespeare, like Asimov, was a compulsive writer, and there's no way that he would sign off and say farewell because he knew that he kind of couldn't keep away from the pen and the page. But I would still I would say to Asimov, I think that he knew that he was going into retirement and he did not know when he would be able to say goodbye you know what i mean right he he didn't know if he knows that he's moving toward retirement his next two plays are going to be collaborative he doesn't know if he's going to have an occasion to put into a play um an address directly to the audience i think this is the occasion it doesn't mean that he's never gonna he's never gonna write again. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have plans for future plays. I think it means he he can see the end in sight and he knows his chances for saying goodbye are limited. Now is the moment. Now is the moment. And this in particular is the play. Hmm. So I don't I don't I, I think Asimov has good points, but I don't think he's right on that. Right. And there's I mean, either way, the thing that Shakespeare is contemplating through Prospero is the question of what does it mean to say goodbye to power, Mm. to the ability to create a tempest and then resolve it. Like that's a, I mean, that, that's a huge question. And 
in literature, I love that Prospero does this well. It's very rare to see that. Even in Shakespeare's canon, mm. most of his characters who gain power in power, the, the issue of succession and kingship and leadership is par- paramount in Shakespeare. And very rarely do any of Shakespeare's characters do this virtuously. Yeah. Um, most of them end up with a stage littered with dead bodies. Yeah. Right? That's Macbeth. That's Othello. Yeah. That's, you know, the, the, even, even the history plays, I mean, ad nauseum, there's men seeking power and women seeking power uh, and ambitiously attempting to control their circumstances so that they can avoid the uh, rise and fall of the wheel of fortune and of course failing. But Prospero is willing to ride the wheel. Yeah, he is. And that is so compelling. Um, and, and that, again, is why I'm coming around to this idea of, of Prospero as a living, rounded character who is moving on a trajectory or an arc of repentance and growth. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, too. I think we're settled on that, Heidi. I think mm-hmm. we should do a production of The Tempest. And who would we cast as Prospero? Oh, Tim McIntosh, for Guy, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I hate that I'm old enough to be considered a possibility for uh, Prospero, but I'm gonna I'm gonna like reshape that as a compliment to my uh, potential acting prowess, Heidi. How's that? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what, of course what I meant. Of okay, course. good, good, good. Yes. Good. Uh, yes. <laughs> I prosper in the prime of life as you are. Yes, robust and vigorous with all of the manly virtues. <laughs> that is a unique casting choice. I think I've told you when I think when we um, were doing Lear, I think I told you before Matt and I started doing it that one of my goals, one of my acting goals for my life is to be able to play Lear. And that means that I have to both kind of like be old enough, fit enough um, to memorize the lines and to actually move about on the stage. I think it's like a good life goal, you know, like stay sharp, Tim, you're going to have to do Lear someday and you're going to be old when you do it. That's right. Yeah. You definitely play Lear, but not for a long, long time. Good. I like it. Thank you. Not for a long, long time. Um, We've reached the end of the play. I feel like I should give a speech. I know. About <laughs> saying goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> we've already, no, we've already read the epilogue, so we can't do that speech. But, so we've reached the end. We're going to do Q&A next week. You've heard us say, listeners, that we would love to hear your questions so we can discuss them on the air. Heidi, do you have any closing thoughts about this, what we think is Shakespeare's last play? Um, I just, I guess just one small one, which is how appropriately titled this play is. Mm. Uh, and the, that it begins with a tempest created by Prospero and it ends with a Prospero humbly, uh, leaving behind a resolved 
stage, not littered with dead bodies, but in fact, full of people who have either repented themselves or been forgiven or been united. Um, and the tempest is settled. And now mm. there's a period of peace coming for the island, maybe. I mean, it's left in the care of Caliban. So that's right. another, there's a question. Right. Um, so it's still complex, uh, even in its resolution. There's just so much in this play. So, and now I'm getting even more ideas, but I'm going to let our audience at home sort through some of those things on their own. Hopefully we've given enough to think about. So I don't know, Tim, what about you? What are your final thoughts? I, I think I have enjoyed this play on the page as much as any of the productions that I've seen. And I, I I know that's really, I know it's not, it doesn't sound very Tim. Like I love productions and I do love productions of the Tempest, but I think slowing down, slowing down, especially I kind of became really, I fell in love with Prospero. I I always liked him, but I think seeing this other rendition by the Royal Shakespeare company, I, I, I think that that vision of, Simon Russell Beale's vision of Prospero really opened the play up for me in a way that other Prosperos, the kind of mild, cool, controlled Prosperos did not. And so having seen that, it it enabled me to kind of like go to the text with fresh eyes, I think. So, yeah, that's my closing thought. I really enjoyed the text, yeah. Um, I think that, okay, now I guess I have one more clue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is that (laughs) great literature and the the Tempest, I I always find that I end the reading of a great work of literature with more questions than Mm. I had even before I started it. And so, and I think that this play, you know, we just did the Odyssey on the flagship show and I'm teaching it again at this right now. And I'm thinking of new things that I hadn't even thought of and reading it many times. And The Tempest is like that for me. I I end a reading or a production thinking, now I have more questions. And I just love that. I mm. love that about Shakespeare's work. I love that about being a reader and and having conversations with people like you. So thank you for including me on this. I, I really just love this play and I've had the best time. Yeah, me too. Me too, Heidi. Okay, let's say goodbye. Thanks everybody for listening to The Plays The Thing. Again, if you want to join us on the Close Reads discussion group on Facebook, find us there or on Instagram, Twitter at Close Reads Pods. Send us an email at closereadspodcast at gmail.com or sign up for the newsletter at closereadsubstack.com. For Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I am Tim McIntosh. Thank you for listening and happy reading. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.